With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome into Double Stint, Sports Car 365's Sports Car Racing Podcast in Daytona Beach, Florida. I'm Ryan Marine, joined by John DeGeese from Chicago as we look back on the Roar Before the 24 and the Motul Pole Award 100, the first qualifying race in the history of the Rolex 24. Set the grid for next weekend's Florida Endurance Classic. And John, it's, uh, it certainly was a busy weekend of news and on-track activity and also, like we said, the unprecedented nature of having a qualifying race for the first time for the Rolex 24. So a lot to dive into here. You were following it from afar. Any uh, first impressions, I guess, watching the qualifying race from home and uh, contributing to our coverage, of course? Yeah, Ryan, I, I think it was an interesting race. My, my only question and regret, and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, is that you know the race started in, in wet weather conditions and sort of dried out. And usually races of that nature don't produce, aren't, aren't, aren't really as exciting as, as some other events, barring the, the changing of tires and strategy and all that. And I, I wonder if we had a full dry race, it might have had a little bit of a different outcome. Um, there were some dull points for sure. And, um, you know, maybe not everybody was showing their full strength. And I think we'll get to that as well. But it it was a, a good first attempt, let's say. But I think there's definitely some room for improvement in some areas. All right, let's get to it. Um, and I think we'll focus in on what took place during the qualifying race. There were several on-track sessions beforehand. But really all of that building up to this race itself, interesting that the ultimate winner of the race, uh, Pipo Durrani and Felipe Nasser in the number 31, Wheelin Engineering, Action Express Racing, Cadillac DPI V.R. Uh, they had to overcome a penalty. They, they initially were set to start from the front of the field based on their qualifying time setting, qualifying for the qualifying race. It is that kind of event. It's been a little bit confusing trying to figure this all out. But uh, they came in a little bit underweight, and they had to start at the back. It did not seem to affect them a whole lot, however, because they just drove to the front. And once they got there, it was pretty clear that was the dominant pairing and the dominant car in the race. And, John, that doesn't really come as a big surprise to me based on the earlier week of running the Cadillac seemed to be like the package to have not a big surprise there either given the history of Cadillac here the last couple of years last four years but that said um Action Express in particular really seems to have their heads around this and and this appears to be a, a really strong duo at least and even the rest of the driver lining as well I think if you're looking for an early favorite it's these guys yeah absolutely and I, I think even before going into the weekend, you could probably say Action Express would be one of the favorites. And, and just their performance over the course of the weekend um, between the 31 crew and even the 48 crew, um, the Ally-sponsored Cadillac, I I was really impressed by the, the strength um, put in by um, Jimmy Johnson, Kamui Kobayashi, and uh, uh, Mike Rockenfeller and Simon Pagino there, um, literally, you know, being right up to speed with, with the, all the other full-season IMSA teams. So, uh, um Real no surprise up front. I, I think the surprise is the, some of the um, talk about sandbagging and, and, and whatnot, particularly in DPI. Um, it's hard to sort of say exactly what that means 
you know, there's always games that are played at the roar and, and people say a lot of things. And if you look back at some of our stories in previous years, <laughs> I think we've had similar stories yes. every single year. So it's usually the guys that are quick that make allegations saying that the slow guys aren't really showing their speed. So I'm not sure how much we have to read into that just yet. IMSA has all the data. Um, you know, if there is needs to be a change, I think there will be a change and we have to trust the system that's in place. Well, let's get into the sandbagging allegations here. I had it a little further down in the notes, but this seems like as good a time as ever to to bring it up because, to your point, the post-race press conference, Felipe Nasser, unprompted, just comes in and starts talking about how, he, in his mind, the, the other manufacturers aren't showing what they're capable of. And certainly, you look at the results throughout the week, and the Cadillac has been the dominant package. But I think there's a little bit more to this than than allegations of sandbagging because in the case of the two Acura uh, teams, they're both new to the Acura chassis. There's only the one Mazda out there, and it's actually been pretty quick and pretty close. So I, I think this is what you said earlier, that just the drivers and the teams playing the game, they know that they need to protect themselves after looking so strong through this week of running to make sure that they don't get hit with the big old BOP stick before we get to the Rolex 24. Yeah, and you have to remember, Cadillac has won this race every single year right. since the inception of the DPI platform. So their favorites, I think, no matter what, going into this race, even if they had a, even if they didn't, weren't the quickest cars at the roar. I, I think the the Cadillac package is by far and large the most reliable. We've seen that proven in time and time again. The Mazda is is getting better. It, it, it but it, it won its first major in long and distance endurance race at Sebring last year. Sure, um, the Acuras have always been snake bitten more or less in the endurance races outside of Petit Le Mans um, last year but it's more or less just those typical pre-race talk you know that that goes on and um I'm not reading too much into it just yet and and I I think that you know you you look at some of the other classes and there might be some arguments to be made in in GTD particularly since there are so many different manufacturers there it's easier to sort of mask potential performance there when especially if you have only one team running only one one car in a manufacturer per team you know it's very easy to potentially you know quote manipulate the BOP that way but I'm not saying that anybody has but I, you can't be a hundred percent on it all the time in every single lap every single corner and I know what Pippo and 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 Felipe said you know that they're always 100% fully on it all at all times but that's just humanly impossible you know so whether it's deliberate or not whether they're trying to play some games we don't really know for sure but again this is a typical roar to the Rolex 24 talk and 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 let's see what happens before the the start of official on-track action on Thursday. It seems to me, though, that the reason this is especially important right now is because this qualifying race existed in order to prevent sandbacking. They put this in place to get BOP data, and they paid points like they will for qualifying all season long as an incentive to run hard, at least for the full season teams. And I think that does bring up one of the weaknesses in this plan, because if you are not a full season team, or if you're an LMP2 or LMP3 team, where the Rolex 24 does not pay points to the full championship anyway, there's not a ton of incentive out there, although we're less concerned about BOP in, in the those two classes nevertheless 
what do you think? I mean, it did it, from the outside at least, and I'm looking at this from the outside too. Did it seem like more teams were taking this seriously than we've seen in years past, or, or are we going to have to wait and see what it looks like in the Rolex 24 itself to to have a full idea? It's hard to tell because, quite honestly, I don't think there were a lot of teams taking the the qualifying race very seriously, but we never had the qualifying race before. Mm -hmm. We had the qualification for pit garage spaces, which is a lot different. That's a single lap effort. You know, um, the qualifying race was 100 minutes. Um, there were quite a few teams that dropped out in the, at various stages, two cars didn't even start. Um, and for, you know, for reasons that are, I think, valid. They don't want to jeopardize their equipment for the race. So um, it's it's an interesting one to see. I, I, it's a, and it's a tough one to call. I, I, I don't really have an answer. Um, you know, I'm sure there were a lot of teams showing their full strength, and I'm sure there were some teams that weren't. But whether that's deliberate or not, uh, we, we can't really just say that right now. Well, ultimately, from my standpoint at least, I think... We'll, we'll wait and see what the Rolex 24 looks like. If the BOP is as good or better than ever, then I would call this a success. If it isn't, if it, it becomes clear that people were playing games and the incentive wasn't good enough, then I'm for scrapping this. I think there is a, a great deal of risk involved, especially for some of the smaller teams. If they were to write off a chassis, for instance, that puts the most important race of the calendar in question, given how close the Rory is now to the race itself. It would be something a little bit different if we reverted back to having weeks in between. However, I think it is a risk worth taking, assuming everyone takes it seriously and the balance of performance is good. Um, they need the data, especially here at Daytona, where they can't rely on the other tracks on the calendar as much to build the BOP table. It is a unique one for this racetrack. So if this works from a BOP standpoint, then I'm, I'm all for continuing with it. But if it doesn't, if it's clear that it hasn't made a difference this year, then, then I say throw it out the window. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. Okay, let's get away from all the BOP talk. We have a whole other week of that, I'm sure, in the build-up to the Rolex 24. A couple other comments generally about the race. You mentioned the mixed conditions started off wet, gradually dried as the race went off. That caught a couple of teams out from a strategy perspective, Chip Ganassi racing in particular, but I don't think that took away from what, in my mind, was a really impressive debut from Kevin Magnuson and I think there are a lot of people who rate him very highly. He hasn't had a chance to show his skill in F1 in recent years due to simply the team he was driving for. But to come out, start the race, do a rolling start, which I don't think he's done, if at all, certainly in a long time, to do it in a car he's not that familiar with, on a rain tire he doesn't know, and to drive to the front like he did, I, I really was blown away by Kevin Magnuson's debut. Yeah, it was really impressive stuff from the Dane, especially with limited track experience, limited track experience, limited car experience. Yeah. Um, you know, he was supposed to do a bunch of testing, I think, at the end of December. Um, then um, his his partner gave birth to their their baby, I think, a bit earlier than expected, and and all of a sudden he didn't have the the time that it was necessary. Um, 
not ne- not necessary, but didn't have the time to in the car as as expected before the before the roar. So to see him adapt that quickly and also like you said, Ryan, in the wet um, and on a wet weather tire um, that's unknown to him, that was very impressive. And it was a shame that Ganassi sort of had a bit of a fumble with the with the strategy there because um, under the second full course caution, everybody, all the DPI cars pitted for slicks, and um, Ganassi somehow left that car out on track, which I'm still sort of scratching my head about. But um, yeah, they ultimately ended up finishing a lap down as a result. But um, I think that car definitely would have been in the mix for the win had that not, had that not happened. Some of the other class results, LMP2, PR1 Matheson Motorsports looks incredibly strong. It was Ben Keating, who actually had a pace lap spin in the wet, but put that behind him pretty quickly and turned in a good stint before turning it over to Mikkel Jensen. Uh, they had a great battle with the Chetsquar Racing Delara, which has kind of come out of nowhere to be a really good surprise throughout the course of the week thus far in the build-up to the Rolex 24. They ultimately had an issue that took them out of contention, but... Uh, nevertheless have shown really really good pace but pr1 matheson seems to have the edge of the field thus far through testing in lmp2 lmp3 without a doubt milner motorsports america has been the dominant team there they won the imsa prototype challenge race and now uh put the car on pole for the qualifying race and won the qualifying race as well for the rolex 24 so looking incredibly strong for their rolex 24 debut in lmp3 machinery as that class makes its debut in uh, in the WeatherTech Championship. GTLM Corvette goes one two, and interesting, it was the the two newcomers, Nick Tandy and Alexander Sims, who paired up to take the win there. And Turner Motorsport got the win in GT Daytona with Bill Oberlin and Robbie Foley teaming up. And uh, Bill Oberlin was another one who was very proactive in pointing out potential sandbagging within the GTD class in his post race press conference. But uh, general thoughts again, looking back, anybody that we have haven't talked about or that i just mentioned in passing john that stood out to you from their performances good or bad yeah, I was really surprised by the Setzelar um, Delara. Here's a car that had struggled for years in the World Endurance Championship, and then all of a sudden comes over here and is an instant contender. Um, it's interesting because I think it's the characteristic of the track yeah. at Daytona that makes it really um, suit very well, um, you know, due to the high speed nature. Because you see that the trap speeds for this car um, always at the top end of the spectrum wherever you go. So um, maybe with some luck, they could play a factor into the race. I know their lineup is a bit unknown um to americans at least but um i, I was definitely surprised by their their closer driver um in in those f- battling it out with uh, Mikkel jensen there in the end so um definitely one entry to keep an eye on and also is the lmp3s in general um there was a lot of concern going into the race about how they'd interact with the gtlms and ultimately we really didn't see that materialize as much um there was a split start which i think was a last minute decision by imsa to to sort of um uh, space out the prototypes and gts after all of those concerns pre-race um due to the uh, lap times from lmp3 and gtlm being very very similar and both cars getting their lap times in the same way, basically having the same top speed and cornering abilities. Um, it's been a bit of a challenge. <laughs> that that word's been used a lot from yes. drivers um, over the course of the, the weekend. So I think the race didn't pan out to be what it could have been for 
the interaction between those two cars because a bunch of LMP3 teams decided just to park their cars or have problems of various sorts mechanically. So uh, I'm curious to see how that'll pan out for the race because I think that still is a topic of concern. I think it is the number one unknown going into the race, and I think we hoped we would learn a little bit more from the qualifying race, but uh, for all the reasons that you've pointed out, there are still a lot of questions about how LMP3 is going to play with the rest of the WeatherTech Championship. So to be determined, very much there. Uh, Let's get to some news here this week and some interesting news stateside from General Motors. Laura Wontrop-Klauser, and if I'm mispronouncing the name, I apologize, uh, but has been named the Chevrolet Sports Car Program Manager, had been involved in the Cadillac side of things for some time, going back to Pearly World Challenge, actually. And had some interesting thoughts, John, when you spoke with her about GM's future involvement in sports car racing and what platforms they're looking at. And it sounds like both LMDH and GT3 are on the table. Yeah, those are two of the areas they're looking at for the future, and I think it makes a lot of sense for for any manufacturer, quite frankly, because we see that GTE, GTLM is dying off, at least in America, and LMDH is the new prototype platform replacing DPI. So when you take two steps back, it actually doesn't come as a huge revelation, I think. But at the same time, to get somebody from GM to confirm this is quite a development because GM has been usually quite muted on what they're looking at program-wise for the future. So um, what Laura did say is that they're looking to place the Corvette brand first and foremost in a favorable favorable position. Um, she didn't say that it's a done deal with the GT3 Corvette. We understand that they're building the car right now, but that doesn't really mean a whole lot. We've had we had a built uh, we had a Multimatic um, built for DP at one DPI at one point, and it was never raced. So I don't think there's anything to necessarily look into there. But um, I think Corvette is definitely being positioned as the brand of choice within GM's sports car initiatives, at least in IMSA. And based on my chat with Laura, it wouldn't surprise me if we would see maybe a Corvette-branded LMDH program, potentially a factory program. Maybe Pratt & Miller would run that car and then open up the GT3s to customers only. Um, again, this is just a prediction on my part. No, uh, there's been no official word, no nothing. I don't want to get anybody upset or, or worried or, or up in arms over what's going to happen. But I just get the sense that's one of the options that GM is looking at, um, especially with the way the future is, is headed with LMDH. So um, Cadillac doesn't seem to be in a pole position right now um, to continue that program, although it could still happen. Um, on the road, um, Cadillac's lineup is going to be largely EVs um, in the next couple of years. Uh, Chevrolet, it's still you know, there's still some internal combustion engines. They're not necessarily big on hybrids, but we do know that a hybrid Corvette could be in the works for the road. And so that would be a great way to market Mm. a hybrid Corvette if it's an LMDH. So that's just my thought again as well there. Yeah. Interesting. And with IMSA's impending move next year to GT3 for its GT classes or class, depending on how they want to, to go about this. It's not official, but all signs are pointing to to them dropping GTE at the conclusion of this season. Uh, if Corvette uh, were to go that direction, that severs the tie then to Le Mans. Do you have a sense of if 
they'll keep some GTE spec C8Rs around to, to try and go on a one-off basis to Le Mans, or is that something that's just going to be put on the back burner until uh, LMDH comes online? I think that they'll still be going to Le Mans for sure. Um, it's it wouldn't take that much of an effort to continue their GTE program, um, maybe do a race or two in the WEC as a tune-up and, and keep their existing cars for that race. And then, say, LMDH materializes, then they can shift their focus there. Um, again, that's just pure speculation on my part, and I'm speculating a lot about all <laughs> this. So to be, to be clear, again... Um, that's the way I would read it, um, at least right now. Yeah, very much a fluid situation. The reason that we're stuck speculating is I don't think GM even knows what they're going to be doing right now. So this is us trying to read the tea leaves a little bit. Stepping away from IMSA, the WEC put out an entry list for the upcoming season. What did we learn, John? I know 33 cars are on their entry list. We've got some confirmations of uh, who's going to be involved and who isn't on the hypercar front. Front and of course all the other classes to consider yeah lots of gte am cars um although i don't think it comes as a huge surprise we've been building up that class for quite a while now but um what some of the interesting things to me are who's on the list in lmp2 and hypercar um wrt has committed uh, an orica lmp2 for 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 that class um there's also some other teams that are, are going to be making their wec debuts there which i find quite interesting in the case of wrt it's clearly as a reconnaissance mission for a potential audi lmdh and a couple of years and then you have um, some drivers that were nominated in, in the Glickenhaus both Gustavo Menezes and Ryan Briscoe will be driving for the American Constructor um, this year in the WEC uh, we're told that there's going to be another flurry of other fellow IMSA drivers that'll be filling out the lineup um, in those two cars uh, potentially announced later this week so um, great news all around I think 33 cars is a solid number um, but you know at the top it's really Toyota and Glickenhaus um, no by Collis. They've been extremely quiet about their program, and it looks like they're not going to be on the grid um, potentially at all uh, uh, this year. Yeah, it's a shame. Can't say it comes as a complete surprise, but uh, that does still leave us with five hypercars, and hopefully with the balance of performance system, we'll have a good fight at the front of the field in the WEC that won't involve a success handicap. <laughs> that would be my yeah. goal, at least. Uh, staying in the WEC, long-awaited news here and long-predicted as well. The 1,000 miles of Sebring for the second consecutive year has been canceled, and this one hits home a little bit here, John, because... I remember this was one of the first events that got nixed when the pandemic really got started, not quite a year ago, but close to it. And here we are almost a year later and similar news. Really no surprise here. Um, it's kind of been in the works for quite a few months. I remember hearing people talk about this back in November and even in early or November, December, you know, at the prospects of likely not running a Sebring due to the increased COVID rates in the U.S. And um, ultimately, WEC had to put the news out sooner or later because the, the shipping containers were due to leave, I think, early February. So it was formally announced last week. Um, Portimao will now open the season with an eight-hour race in early April. Um, but 
that's interesting there too because um, Portugal's getting hit really hard with yes. COVID cases right now, um, just like Dubai has been in recent weeks where there's been a lot of racing there too. Um, so it's interesting to see if there will be any further changes to this calendar. I wouldn't be surprised if that race gets called off altogether and we start the season at Spa in late April. But um, let's wait and see. Um, I, I know the, the ACO and FIA are pushing all efforts to have the race at in Portugal right now, but I think there are some other backup plans as well, um, just in case. Well, assuming it can go on, the good news about this development, certainly it's a a shame that Super Sebring remains just that one-off for the moment with the last two editions of the WEC race canceled, but for Jim Glickenhaus and his team, he had said, look, if they start at Sebring, we won't be there, but if it gets pushed back, we can be, and so part of the fallout is that as it stands, according to Jim, the Glickenhaus team should be able to contest a full season in the FIA WBC, which is a great thing. And we can have a real fight for the championship in the new hypercar class. Staying in the WEC, sort of, or at least in that family, we, we believe hydrogen is the way of the future at some point in that championship. And interesting development that Red Bull and Orica are teaming up on a hydrogen prototype. What do we know? Yeah, it was announced on Monday morning that Orica and Red Bull Advanced Technologies have been awarded the tender to develop the chassis for the future hydrogen class that will debut with the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 2024. So um, this means that that will be a spec chassis for whatever manufacturers or teams would want to race with a hydrogen-powered car. Um, that's really the news there, and that Orica and, and Red Bull Advanced Technologies will be developing the chassis. Um, we've seen, obviously, the, the rollout of the of the Green GT developed um, uh, hydrogen car that um, the ACO has been pioneering um, in recent years um, under the Mission 24 um, banner. That is an ADAS-built chassis, basically an LMP3 car that was converted, and there was a second generation unveiled recently that will be doing some Michelin Lama Cup outings this year. But um, to have this development, I think, sort of gives a lot more validity um, into the the category as a whole, because... um, up until now, it sort of looked like more of a pet project of the ACO, but now when you involve two companies of the stature of Orica and, and Red Bull, I think that says a lot to where uh, it is this whole formula is going and as we've seen you know evs are not going to work you know on battery power for 24 hours at least not right now um with the current technology so the only alternative fueled possibility you know mainstream like would be hydrogen and this could really put the innovation back on the racetrack first before um seen it on the road because there hasn't been a, a very large rollout of hydrogen for road cars where it's quite the opposite with EVs. And even speaking to Laura Klauser about um, a GM's EV adoption and where that sort of fits in with the racing programs, she admitted that uh, racing sort of taking a back seat in terms of development right. of, of that at that arena. So with hydrogen, it's not. You know, hydrogen is something still so brand new to the automotive industry as a whole, and this is an opportunity where these manufacturers and, and ACO and FIA and, and the like can be pioneers in developing this technology that can eventually 
get onto the road. So um, I think this is an excellent idea. I know Pierre Fion is a huge proponent of this, and I really wish this project well. I do too. Really exciting stuff. And like you said, it's great to have some innovation back in sports car racing in particular and endurance racing. I think uh, this, this has the potential to be really, really big. Final piece of news for the week. We have a new title sponsor for GT World Challenge, and that's all four of the GT World Challenge powered by AWS series around the world, the European, Australian, Asian, and American series. Sim racing um well, hardware manufacturer, I guess you would call it, Fanatec, has been named the new title sponsor, which kind of speaks to the link-up that we've seen from the SRO to the sim racing world here, uh, really since the pandemic, but going back a little ways further beyond that as well. So kind of fascinating to see that come to fruition, and also an interesting initiative, John, that, that they have to really link esports to the real-world equivalent in motorsports. Yeah, so for the Fanatec um, GT World Challenge in Europe Endurance Cup powered by AWS, I know that's some helpful. <laughs> I'm trying to say it myself, but um, for the basically the Endurance Cup races in Europe, there will be a, a virtual championship where each team has to nominate a driver in the virtual space, and that driver will score points towards that team's, uh, team's championship in the real world. So um, this is, I think this is only applicable for the pro, the pro class and the Silver class, so um, pro am and am entries are exempt. But um, this is definitely a first of its kind initiative. I don't think we've seen anything like this before, where um, a, a virtual race will actually um, count towards the real championship. So details are still a bit yet to come on, on a lot of how this will work. But the idea is to have on-site races um, at each of those. Um, five events with the rigs there and everything and and then it'll be a, a huge event i think so um hats off to, to sro stefan rattel and everybody at at Assetto corsa competizione the official video game of of sro um worldwide and then gt world challenge and and also um a fanatec for bringing this um, initiative together because i think it's going to be a real interesting one to follow yeah it's a great opportunity for motorsports we've seen it in the last year especially to get people involved from their homes through through uh, simulation and through video games and, and to create that. And there's been a long-standing connection there, going back to the, the PlayStation GT Academy thing uh, back in the day that they did in conjunction with Nissan, but it just continues to grow and uh, really need to see the sim world and the real-world racing come together. I think there's been a disconnect from the enthusiasts of sim racing. They don't necessarily translate into race fans, and I think this might do something to try and alleviate that problem and create a bit of an outreach there so really curious to see how that's going to go i'm going to have to practice saying fanatec gt world challenge america powered by aws before my broadcast next year because i'm afraid that's going to trip me up a time or two but i got some time to get that done before the it's not quite as bad as bridgestone presents the champ car world series powered by ford yes. I, don't, I don't think so at <laughs> least we have a, a number one uh, that won't, won't be broken good point that is true but hey the challenge is out there now and if they can add another presenting sponsor uh who knows where where we might stand but the other interesting element to this is is these series were for so long synonymous with the blanc pond 
watch brand, and that went away. We, we did not have any real naming sponsor other than the, the AWS powered by at the end uh, around the world this year, but this has the makings of, some, of something that might stick, and, and it has the chance to to really be a big deal. It, it strikes me, though, John, didn't Stefan Rattel, when Blancpain went away, speak about not necessarily wanting a naming rights partner like this because it takes away from some of the name recognition and you're starting you associate the series with a brand that isn't yours but in in a lot of senses though this one makes sense he he did say that but then again we've had a year of no branding at all Mm -hmm. so that sort of helped the transition i think so when you see gt world challenge you sort of think of that as the brand now you're not going to think of it as fanatec gt world challenge that's just my thought yeah um you know maybe that's what he was sort of talking about more or less yeah you might be right that is a good point though we have come a long way i think by the end of the year everyone finally had their heads wrapped around that okay uh more on those news topics up at sportscar365.com plenty of other news as well but we do need to move on and we did get some listener questions from last week's show the first one is from the underscore z underscore man 97 who says if this has been asked before i understand it not making it onto the podcast but here it goes with the reduction of bmw's program to just the endurance cup what does this mean for the future of gtlm could we see chevy moving to a gt3 vet and we kind of touched on this earlier yes we have talked about it on the podcast before but not everybody can listen to every podcast we certainly understand that and this is a big topic john this is maybe the topic that is going to take up the most of everyone's brain power trying to solve this problem if prototype convergence has more or less been resolved now it's about just trying to implement it gt convergence seems to be the next big thing so yeah what do we know yeah i think we can expect to see two different gt3 classes next year a gt3 pro and a gt3 am whatever it's called you know gtd pro gtd am i don't i don't know but um you know, maybe the existing class staying more or less the same of GTD, maybe some driver rating requirements changes there, but basically opening up to all pro lineups with that platform of cars. And I would assume we would see Corvette with that, with their GT3 car, at least for the first year to develop the car, to get the, the bugs worked out. And then, like I said, maybe move on to LMDH with the factory program instead. Um, that would make a lot of sense in terms of the timeline um, un, 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 uh, involved here. Um, but other competitors with all pro lineups, you know, you could look at BMW with their new M4. I think that would make a lot of sense considering, you know, BMW has, has been, always been a very long time stalwart in pro- professional GT racing in between the ALMS and now the WeatherTech Championship, despite their reduced program for this year. Um, there might be some other manufacturers that would like to step up as well, especially if it is a spec tire. Um, that was one of the big holdups this year for some uh, manufacturers that were potentially looking at running a GT3 spec car in GTLM. Um, IMSA made that allowance. Um, they actually called on some manufacturers mid-season last year, GT3 manufacturers, um, and basically asked them, you know, hey, would you consider running your car with all pro lineups in GTLM next year, much like BMW did in previous years with the M6? And uh, the biggest holdup was the development of confidential Michelin tires. Um, those cars don't have it. It's an expensive 
expensive thing that has to be done. And if it's only for one year or two, it doesn't really make a lot of financial sense, especially for privateer teams. So also, unfortunately, that didn't materialize for this year. But um, I could see if if GT3 Pro, for instance, has the same type of tire as, as GT3 AM, then the floodgates could open in terms of all pro lineups. You know, you can have an Aston Martin team, you can have a Ferrari, you can have uh, another BMW, Turner could enter a, a pro BMW if they wanted to, or Lamborghini. Um, it, it could really, really grow the grid, I think, in terms of GT machinery. So I'm really hoping that's what happens. Um, still no official word from IMSA. The sooner the better i think we need to know but um for sure i think that's where that evolution is going even though there has been no official announcement yeah i think uh, lexus might be another one that could be interested yeah. i talked to both jimmy basser and james Soli sullivan who run the the lexus program um over the weekend here at the roar and they were non-committal on the topic but both said basically look we're partners with trd if they want to do it we'll do it so uh that was definitely not a no it's not a yes either but uh, it's it seems like that would be another brand that that could be in the mix and you look at their driver lineups and i'm not sure even though they're in a pro-am class right now that they would have to do a whole lot of adjusting <laughs> to uh, yeah. be up to speed in an all pro category so make of that what you will uh let's get to our next question it goes to Shea Samuels. With the building hype and commitment to LMDH from manufacturers and prospective teams alike, do you see the class structure that IMSA is currently committed to with DPI, P2, P3, GTLM, and GTD staying the same once LMDH replaces DPI? Do you think IMSA will drop a class, and if so, which one? Well, it's an interesting one because LMP3 right now is committed for two seasons, this year and next year. So it gives IMSA the option to basically get rid of LMP3 when LMDH debuts. And I think IMSA is going to be in a wait-and-see approach. Just A, first see how successful this, this class is, and B, see how many LMDH cars will be ready in 2023. If there's only going to be a few manufacturers, they're probably going to need the, the support in terms of numbers for LMP3 for another year. Um, bottom line is I don't think LMP3 is a long-term class for the WeatherTech Championship. I think it eventually will phase out. Um, the question is just exactly when. Okay, good question. Thank you, Shay. Final question is from at Johnny Hawksworth one on Twitter, who says, with the WEC being back on a calendar year schedule, will we get a single-day reveal of the Lamar WEC ELMS entry lists in February once again like we did in the past before the super season? I guess news this week gave you your answer a little bit because we got the WEC entry list. So the answer, at least for this year, is no. But and that is something Something I'd like to see come back. They made a real production of that, John, and it was a fun day. Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know if it'll come back, but um, certainly they're waiting on the the entry list for Lama based on the results of the Asian Lama series, mm. and that series is taking place in February. So we're not going to get a full Lama entry list until probably the end of February, if that's what you're asking about specifically. Okay, thank you for writing in. And if you have a question for a future show, you can leave them in the comment section or use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter. Let's finally look ahead to the week to come. And, of course, it is the Rolex 24 coming up this weekend. 49 cars. It looks pretty well set in stone right now on the entry list. Uh, when the Black Swan Porsche pulled out, there was some thought that perhaps another entry could materialize to this point. We've not seen it. And since it did run at the roar, I don't think that is very likely at this point. And, and frankly, I think we've got a good entry list as it stands 
even in a, in a normal year, I think it looks good, but especially given everything that's going on in the world right now. Yeah, there's still a few drivers to be announced. I think um, uh, Milner needs a fourth driver. There's mandates for four driver lineups in all the pro-am categories. So um, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But nonetheless, yeah, I, I think we've talked about it a lot in the last couple of weeks of the, of the show. Um, what a stellar lineup there is um, between all five classes, really. Um, the big question mark, like we said, is LMP3. How are they going to survive, A? Um, B, how will they interact with, with the other classes? And I, I think there's going to be a really close eye on their interaction between uh, GT, LM, and and the the prototype class there. So, um, looking forward to the the, the week ahead. Um, cars are on track on Thursday, and it's going to be very strange not to have qualifying mm-hmm. on Thursday. Usually, it's a big busy day where there's two sessions uh, of practice, then right into qualifying, then a night session. It, we're basically running nonstop, you know, chasing around stories and everything. And now to think about it, the grid's already been set. Yeah. <laughs> and now we just have a few more practice sessions to go before the big race. It will be a Rolex. 24 unlike any other i think it is safe to say and uh, we look forward to bringing you all the coverage make sure you keep attuned to sportscar365.com up in the next uh, week or so all the time really but especially this week it should be a busy one probably some news coming at various times throughout the week as well uh, hard to real, really get a read on what exactly to expect this weekend because of the lack of access which we understand but it's uh, a reality and it makes the, the job a bit more difficult but we do expect there to be plenty of excitement throughout the week of build-up to the race and then the race itself. Can't wait to get the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship season officially underway, although there have been points paid out already, so make of that what you want at this point. Uh, Looking forward to talking about it on our next regular show, which will be next week, so hope you join us for that. Thanks so much for tuning in here on Double Stint.